Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Tropes. I'm Pride. And I'm Prejudice. And I'm Zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are uh, taking a a trip back to Regency-era Great Britain uh, to talk about the works of Jane Austen and uh, their more recent uh, modernization and film adaptations. Yeah, and uh, we're doing it all with a very special guest. Hi, yeah, my name is Liz. I'm a friend of Hannah's from college, and I'm a pretty big Jane Austen fan. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, like, when we were prepping for this episode, you know, we were like, Oh, Liz, maybe watch this and watch that. Uh, Liz went above and beyond with the watch list uh, and also reread <laughs> at least one of the books. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I've already seen most of the watch list. <laughs> but you had to go back for another dip. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't that wasn't a problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Liz, uh, I wanted to you know bring you on. You have a more familiarity with the with the text uh you know the original text than i do certainly and uh i think that like some of the main thematic questions that we're trying to answer by looking at jane austen and modern film adaptations of jane austen is to sort of say uh how does hollywood tackle these like regency era values (laughs) what are you know what kinds of feminisms of the you know 19th century are sort of twisted and skewed and transformed by their contextualization in uh, in modern Hollywood cinema uh, or, or BBC cinema, if the case may be. Well, I think a really interesting thing that Hollywood and the BBC and everything do with Jane Austen, particularly with modern adaptations, is really focus on the romance mm-hmm. and making it a romantic comedy. When really Jane Austen, she writes social comedies or comedies and manners. Mm-hmm. And actually, not all of them are particularly funny. Um, <laughs> I was telling Hannah earlier that I, re-watching it, Sense and Sensibility is an incredibly sad story, mm-hmm. even if it has a happy ending. Right. And and I think it's it's certainly of note that the happy ending, which I, I most Austin novels, at least the early ones have, they the happy ending is marriage. It, right. It simply must be. There's no other <laughs> Well, there was option. nothing else that this woman could do that could secure their future, with the exception of Emma. Right. Because she's rich. Right. And it's rarely even an odd marriage or like a couple that isn't sort of like the ideal, you know, husband for, you know, this character as set up in the beginning. So, like, let's go through some of the the sort of happy couple, happy endings <laughs> in, in these books. So um, we could start with Sense and Sensibility since that was uh, sure. one of her first publications. Was it her first novel? Yeah. It was her first published novel. Mm. Yeah, this one I wasn't as familiar with when, like, we went to watch it. And I haven't... Full disclosure, I'm very bad. I haven't read any of these. So, like, Liz, you are our Listen, book expert. I haven't <laughs> read Sense and Sensibility in years. So, <laughs> it's... I love the movie version of mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility. I think it's the best Austin adaptation by far. That's mm-hmm. the one directed by and starring Emma Thompson from uh, from the 90s? Actually, it was directed by Ang Lee, 
Um, yes. I'm really right. hopeful I'm pronouncing by, that correctly. It was um, written by Emma Thompson. You're, yeah. you're, you're right. Actually, Emma Thompson wasn't going to be the main character. Oh. She wrote it. Um, and then the studio was like, come on, you got to be. You got to be. You got to be Eleanor Dashwood. <laughs> yeah. And Eleanor Dashwood is actually really 19 in the original novel. And Marianne is 16. So they just aged everyone up. So that Marianne's 19 (laughs) and Eleanor is 28 Mm -hmm. or so. Also, it makes it a little less weird with the Colonel Brandon stuff. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that's another one of these sort of, uh, you know, thematic parts of these stories that doesn't like adapt well if you're trying to like modernize them. So ages are something that definitely gets shifted around for Hollywood uh sensibilities uh, (laughs) so to speak (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so so for those who don't know like uh, i guess a short recap of what sense and sensibility is is it's like two well it's it's a mother and her three poor daughters uh who basically lose their inheritance to like a stepbrother not exactly well sort of okay so (laughs) (laughs) so um Mr. Dashwood, who the father who dies, uh-huh. had a family, and his wife died, uh-huh. and then he remarried. Right. And so Elmer, Eleanor and Marianne are part of his second, second family. family. Right. There's a big explanation for why John gets all the money. Uh-huh. Like, it's a plot contrivance, yeah. even in the book. <laughs> so the father dies unexpectedly. So he begs his son to make sure that his half sisters and his stepmom mm-hmm. are uh, taken care of. Right on his deathbed. But eventually, John is talked out of it pretty easily by his wife. Mm-hmm. So, um, so these women who were wealthy now have only five hundred pounds a year. I don't know how much that <laughs> translates to. <laughs> But right, not a lot. it's basically um, this story that's it's to create a ticking clock, basically. Right. Not that that was really a term of art for fiction writers at that time, but it's to say, okay, no longer do we have you know that this family is is growing up in the aristocracy in these you know prized families, but now while still retaining their status, they have lost their material wealth and need to marry up. Right, in order exactly. to maintain the honor of their families. It's, or just survive. It's honestly right. not about honor. It's about having enough money to live. Well, you say that, but there's also, there's a sense of, like, what would be a marriage that would preserve, like, the sanctity of the family. I, right. I guess that's okay. more so in Pride and Prejudice. But, but, but I mean, we'll it, get to that. <laughs> but but I, I think that is a common thread in that, you know, they grew up as ladies. You know, mm-hmm. they were landed you know, or grew up in a landed family. So, like, it feels socially appropriate for them to marry someone else with some kind of distinction like that. Like, they would be marrying down if they married, like, a tradesman or something like that, right? Well, the whole thing with sense sensibility is that... So, if Elnor and Edward... Uh-huh. Um, Edward's incredibly wealthy. Right. Well, he's well, he's not wealthy yet. <laughs> he's gonna get a bunch of money, but his mother lords that over his head mm-hmm. and like declares he can't marry below his status essentially. Right. But he falls in love with Eleanor anyway mm-hmm. because he's you know because he likes her. He likes her, and it's I romantic. Think, yeah. <laughs> 
Right, but, like, for her to marry, like, you know, the reason she can't just find, like, the richest merchant in town and be like, marry me. Exactly. Is, like, it's, yeah. because it's, of status. Yeah, well, class. Right, yeah. like, class, yeah. Right, it's all taking place in this, you know, strange period of, like, a huge burgeoning middle class, huge expansion of women's literacy, printing press, you know, like, the novel existing at all is you know dependent on all of these social right. changes and so those are all being reflected in the novels themselves yeah yes <laughs> agreed agreed so like for sense and sensibility in particular obviously like the 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 question of like why is it that women you know cannot inherit land mm-hmm. you know in this way why that they, you know, having no other options for, you know, securing their own wealth other than marriage, mm-hmm. that when you take away simply, like, taking away some of their wealth, even though they somehow retain similar status, they can't then marry at the level that they were planning to. Right. And why should that be? And so I think it's a lot of Austin questioning those those aspects. Mm-hmm. But also it's it still sort of reifies the aristocracy as something that, like, should exist that uh that's important Mm -hmm. to you know the nobility of the nation to to you know propriety basically Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. it's you know it's all about propriety yeah yeah (laughs) definitely um and i think like that's always a challenge for modern adaptations to have to deal with is because you know the social norms of regency era britain are not the same as the social norms of the 90s. <laughs> you oh know? man, isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> um, like, you know, there are there are some things that um, definitely carry over, but, you know, the idea of marrying beneath you, you know, is less, less of a thing now than it was, you know. Or it just has taken on a totally different uh, valence. And, and I think... Sure. It, it, Unless you have a, you know, more to say about uh, Sense and Sensibility in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, Uh, I did, I just want to say, Sense and Sensibility's biggest theme mm -hmm. is uh, Eleanor's uh, sense Mm -hmm. versus Marianne's romantic sensibilities. Uh (laughs) Not to quote the title or anything. (laughs) Yeah. But, because Marianne, like, is very romantic and Mm -hmm. she's like, I will... She doesn't see how Colonel Brandon could be a good husband because A, he's older, and B, he's not, like, the romantic hero of her stories. Right. Whereas Eleanor does not believe there's any chance that Edward could ever marry her Mm -hmm. because of her status, and then later because she learns that he's already engaged engaged. to Lucy Steele. Was that true, though? Yeah. Oh, okay. I did not realize that was true. Well, there there was also, there was a genre of fiction that sort of predated uh, Austen, which were called novels of, of sensibility or novels of sentimentality, you know, which were some of, like, you know England's first novels so like Pamela uh by um by Samuel Richardson which was it also goes by the title Virtue Rewarded so like it's these tales of like virtuous women who go through many trials and then emerge and have the happy ending marriage marriage. and they were very sentimental very you know 
not about like the real struggles of people living at that time right like so austin is in a sense commenting on those in a way that historians sometimes have framed as like she's directly critical but other times have been like no she's just sort of contributing her own like lived reality to the more sentimental portrayals in 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 the previous uh takes which i think relates directly to you know what she's become now as you said liz like now austin is most associated with the rom-com uh the romantic comedy and so i think a lot of her adaptations into romantic comedy film are sort of commenting on other romantic comedies uh, and you can see that I think in uh, in Clueless and in uh, Bridget Jones's Diary. What do you think of that as a take? <laughs> no, I agree. Like if we the, so, like the three <coughs> movies we watched, which was Bridget Jones' Diary, Clueless, and From Prada to Nada, <laughs> which I have right. Some that one's a little more obscure. <sighs> they all seem well in. For to Prada to Nada's credit, I do think they tried to do a lot yeah. with their material. Yeah. Especially, like, the whole, like, rediscovering your Mexican roots. Right. Which I thought was a really interesting yeah. way of doing that story. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yes, they're all pretty much romantic comedies or a teen drama right. or in the case of Clueless. But even yeah. that's like a teen rom-com. You yeah, know? basically. Like, but I just mean, in a sense, they're also sort of meta-commentaries on other you know, entries in the genre. They're sort, of say, they're sort of saying, we're presenting a more complicated or nuanced protagonist. You know, Alicia Silverstone's character in Clueless, for example, being not quite as likable as many of her, you know, I mean, I still think the character is very likable, but she has like more flaws than a lot of the other romantic leads, the Meg Ryan types uh, of that era. Um, right, but it also makes her i think at least um in clueless like a more compelling character because she has she sees a lot more like growth than right uh like some of these other austin protagonists right well i would say that bridget jones's diary is a direct like attack on the the common romantic comedy because yes. she's she's a mess. Right. She's uh, drinks too much. Yeah. She smokes. She dates men that aren't good for her. Right. A whole right. bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that sense, I think it captures sort of what's what's essential maybe about Austin, mm-hmm. which is that you know people related to her protagonists. Right. Because they were, you know, they had interesting things to say and they had interesting <laughs> thoughts. And they they didn't always mesh perfectly well with their settings. Uh, they often felt out of place. And uh, I think people sympathized with that at the time and still do today. Right. I think, uh, you know, everyone always sees themselves in a lot of ways as an underdog or, um, you know, maybe if not an outcast, maybe just like oh, I'm not really the main character, you know? And, like, that's what a lot of these these people say. They're like, oh, well, of course, it's my sister Jane who's the beautiful one. And, like, right. I'm just quirky old me, you know? Um, but it's like, yeah, but you're quirky in, like, a smart way. <laughs> you know, like, like that's the whole vibe of, uh, you know, like, Elizabeth Bennet. And, um, like, that's what I think is very interesting about 
Bridget Jones's diary specifically is that I would say her character is the least like in like actual details the least like the character yeah. that she's based off of she's almost like an no, amalgamation yeah. of like all five of the sisters like into oh, one she absolutely person is. yeah yeah and and she's doesn't have any sisters right in, mm-hmm. uh, in Bridget Jones yeah it's just her mother and her father yeah right uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice also has that same, it's more of a ticking clock in that one, I, I suppose, that if they don't marry out of, uh, you know, out of their station, the 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 family will, you know, be, uh, you know, it will pass to a, a, a cousin mm-hmm. in this case. So none of them are going to inherit any form of wealth or, or, or land. And, uh, you know, the, the house is sort of in danger. Right. But uh, that's not the case in Bridget Jones. It's just simply she would like to marry somebody with a lot of mm-hmm. money. Actually, I think I don't think it's money. I think she just wants to marry someone. Right. Like, she's right. just like, oh, I don't want to end up an old spinster. You know, like. Like, right. there's that whole scene where she goes to dinner with all those couples. Mm-hmm. And they're all just like staring at her and being like why are there so many single pee people around Bridget and she's Um, like I don't fucking know (laughs) it's not not, why would I know that like do I want to be single no am I I guess so so I think you know in the Pride and Prejudice uh, adaptation it's almost less about the main character's fidelity um, and about you know like Bridget learning to, you know, be less, like, prejudiced, you know, and it's almost more about the the mystery and the draw and the aura of the Darcy character. Right. Um, and I think... Who's the, the only character whose name is directly taken from the book right. and who's closest, I think, to his novel counterpart. Um, definitely for... more so than the Hugh Grant um character yes who is just sort of an amalgamation of um what, what were those characters names liz i forgot wickham, wickham. and collins right. and mr darcy well darcy well, yeah. is darcy but yeah but he's just sort of a romantic rival for uh, uh for, for i always thought that was a really interesting choice because while elizabeth bennett really likes Mr. Wickham mm-hmm. in the beginning, particularly because she can bitch about Darcy all him. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She never, she realizes this pretty quickly that she's not actually in love with him. Mm-hmm. Even though she's like, oh, he's just a friend. Like, he's, she, she pretty quickly realizes that he is not romantic material mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever. Right, but that's because he gets to be used as this, uh, you know, somebody for one of her sisters to go after and then oh no she's going to ruin the family by going with this penniless person and to to go live together in sin in the city like well it's like a really big threat in the like third act this is something that i find really interesting about modern day pride and prejudice adaptations is how they handle lydia bennett yeah because lydia bennett is a 15 16 year old girl (laughs) in the book commits the crime of liking boys too much well and and also falling for an older man who like takes advantage of her basically exactly so i've seen a few modern Prime Prejudice adaptations, the one that lingers the most in my mind is the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Yeah. The YouTube series. Um, 
in that one, Lydia Ben is 21 years old, right. and they show the Wickham and Lydia relationship to be an abusive one. Right. Like, an emotionally abusive one. Yeah. And then he threatens to publish their sex tape yeah. on the internet. Right. Um, but I feel like that is a similar, like it's it feels about shame. like a sim- right, a similar level of shame as to mm-hmm. you know sort of the shame that Lydia was bringing upon the family by running off with him in the in the movie or in the book, um, compared to you know in a modern adaptation like what happens and like yeah. there's no. I real- mean, a big struggle of all the adaptations has been to you know try and construct scenarios that have a similar level of social expectation Mm -hmm. to the Regency era, which there's nothing like that today, you know? There's, like, yes, high school has a lot of expectations associated with it Mm -hmm. and social rules that you're meant to understand without them ever being spoken and things Mm -hmm. that get, you know, that if you transgress them, you'll be bullied and ostracized. And yet, it doesn't come close to the kind of ostracizing that, you know, would take place in this era. So, right. you know, it, it always sort of involves a level of exaggeration or comedic inflation of um, what are today basically just, you know, social expectations. and, and uh, Like in yeah. the book, I'm pretty sure the Bennets are considering moving out of the neighborhood mm-hmm. to escape the shame of having right. a daughter live in sin right. with a man. Yeah. Um, and well, and also ruining, you know, their the prospects of the other sisters as well. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, you know, that's you know the sins of the one does not equal the sins of the others in today's society. Usually, you know. Right. Well, I mean, again, it's like you can inflate it for dramatic right. effect. You can say, "Oh man, if people think my sister is a slut, then they're gonna think." <laughs> We're all I'm a slut. sluts. Yeah. But, you, you know, you're obviously going to be playing up, like, a high school sort of, like, childish expectation, which I think is interesting because it almost makes sense to, to frame that era and its, like, extreme social rules as being somewhat childish and ridiculous. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But you need it for the story to work if you're right. going to be in any way faithful as an adaptation. What's really interesting is Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Darcy are the same class. Right. Like, they're, despite the fact that they have very different amounts of money, mm-hmm. they are both landed gentry. Yeah. Mr. Bennet is a landlord and so is mr darcy they're both landlords so that's part of basically the comedy of lady catherine de berg coming to be like how how dare you be engaged Uh to mr darcy you are nothing like you're nothing compared to my family when Uh that's not true like they're the same class and that's what's Mm. important essentially i mean yes but like it's interesting because in um because in emma you know like there's the the widow or or not the widow um like oh mrs bates Bates and miss bates who and she's sort of like a spinster character who never married and so you know basically her class is lowering because she couldn't get married and because she no longer is technically part of the landed gentry even though she grew up the daughter of a lord so it's like you know like wealth does play a factor into it certainly but it's it's just not the only factor it's like there's it's the inner it's 
weirdly intersectional. <laughs> well, Miss Bates and Emma mm-hmm. are they're basically the same. Right. Because, but Emma is so rich, so she never has to get married. Right. So she so, never has to worry about getting married, which is why she's always marrying everyone else off. Right. Right. Which is translated in, you know, the modern uh, adaptation, Clueless, as, well, uh, Alicia Ick, still I don't want to Her dad is rich. She's never going to have to work in her life, right. probably. Yeah. But uh, she's still in high school is, like, the main reason that she's not thinking about marriage. And she's pairing people up sort of more as just, like, typical high school, like, flirty liking to to you know to match people up with other people and it always serves her interests right well and i mean i think that i honestly think that the most faithful modern adaptation uh of all of these is clueless to emma um versus like you know pride and prejudice to bridget jones or um sense and sensibility to prada donata which i promise we'll talk about it's a weird movie (laughs) we'll talk about it in in Clueless, you know, she wants to kind of do good and, like, help, but, like, is just so privileged that she's never had to actually think about what doing good actually looks like, you know? And so, in her mind, it's, oh, it's adopting the poor, poor new girl who just, like, needs a makeover and making her better. And, like, it, it's fascinating to me how much of a, like, exact... Um, character like basis that is on Emma from the movies and the original novels just because it's very different from a lot of other Austin protagonists like she's she's rich she's smart but not very like witty um you know like she's she's kind of mean whereas like the sweetness or uh like affability of a lot of the other protagonists is like usually like a big draw to them and so it's i don't know it's just very interesting watching her grow and watching her take like oh this is what it means to do a good deed and like realize that it is not what she means at all you know. I also found the Harriet Smith to tie yeah. uh, comparison mm-hmm. to be really interesting because Harriet Smith's whole thing is about no one knows who her parents are. Mm-hmm. So, But Emma likes her as a person, so she's like, oh, she must actually be from a wealthy landed gentry family and how her kind of like puffing Harriet up Mm -hmm. leads her to Harriet instead of you know accepting Mr. Martin's proposal Mm -hmm. who is a farmer and like the person she actually likes (laughs) it's only like I love Mr. Knightley who's like like the top of the right like the, the social ladder the social ladder and emma's like horrified because but i think yeah. she's less horrified because by that time it's that she's realized that she in fact like loves him and it's more like i'm responsible for her like thinking this but also i'm upset because i love him and what 
to marry him, but, uh, you know, like, that sort of drama and conflict, which See, is that, very And teen. that's why I think Clueless works so well as a movie, right. because then you have Cher and Ty, mm-hmm. and Ty suddenly becomes more popular than yeah. Cher, which sends her into a tailspin, and then she's like, oh, I like Josh, and then Cher's like, well, no. I like like Josh. So this is what I will say. Usually, like, you know, it's more cringe in the original, like, telling, where it's like, oh, that's a 16-year-old marrying a 45-year-old. Mmm, weird, uncomfortable. But it's actually, I would say, the clueless that's more uncomfortable with, like, her basically (laughs) marrying her stepbrother. (laughs) <laughs> it's like they made the relationship even closer like, just, than what it was in the original novel. He could have just been, like, <laughs> a neighbor, brother. you know? Right, but, like... Or she could have had a sister, and he was her sister, husband's husband, brother. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's a very common thing yes. to, like, know your extended family. Right, and right. they were like, but they're ex-stepbrother. Like... That's what we're gonna do. And because he's played by Paul Rudd, you just can't can't help it. You're still gonna fall in love yeah. with him. Paul Rudd is great in that movie. I will say though, I so I'd seen Clueless before Emma. I was like, I, I think I watched the like 1990 uh, the, uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow version. Yeah, which I did like better than the 2021. But the guy in that who plays Mr. Knightley looks basically like Paul Rudd. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, is that Paul Rudd? No, wait. No, he's British. This is not Paul Rudd. Well, it's not a crazy uh, expectation because, you know, it was Bridget Jones that first introduced the idea of taking actors from the uh, the BBC <laughs> uh, adaptations and then just sort of plopping them in as a way to sort of make it feel even more British, even more Austin. So Hugh Grant, who had had been in uh, Sense and Sensibility, and uh, of course Mark Darcy being played by Mr. Darcy actor Colin Firth from the BBC uh, series. (laughs) So I think the timeline is Bridget Jones's diary is published, then the 1995 Pride and Prejudice is published, and then Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason is published, and she puts in there Bridget Jones being obsessed with the scene where uh, Colin Firth jumps into the, the lake, lake. <laughs> and she, like, washes it over oh and over, and they actually... I think they filmed, like, a special scene where Renee Zellweger <laughs> interviews Colin Firth oh in the gosh. guise of Bridget Jones. Right, right, right. And then they were, like, they're making the movie, and they're, like, you know, it would be funny uh, having Colin Firth play Mark Darcy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did find it really interesting how, especially in Clueless, where, because... Emma's is trying to make Harriet more high mm-hmm. class, but her main goal is matchmaking mm-hmm. and trying to pair up people and help them find love. Mm-hmm. But in Clueless, that mainly translates into changing tie entire um, outfit mm-hmm. and her clothes and her hair, mm-hmm. and then with 
the female teacher too, mm-hmm. where they're like, "Oh, take your glasses off, <laughs> right? And, oh, your hair, your hair is this really way." And right. Like, it speaks to oh, a new kind of hierarchy yeah. that, like, of course, the hierarchy of beauty existed in yeah. that time, but with the removal of the idea of like class and family, like it means that these other things have so much more value now uh, to how we decide whether someone is, you know, out of someone's league. Which is the closest thing we have to like marrying down, I right. suppose. Is like Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like there there definitely are social classes, you know, yeah. like someone who grows up in a mansion marrying someone from a trailer park is definitely gonna cause like a stir, uh, in some way. But it's not like the social death that it would be, uh, you know, in the Regency era. <laughs> Um, I, I had another question, uh, s- sort of centered on Bridget Jones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this work a a post feminist work? Is the question, <laughs> and is it does it have to be because it is so obsessed with values that are almost you could almost say pre feminism, but you know obviously they're existing in a context of of you know women's issues, uh, but but they're sort of pre you know our modern conception of the you know the twentieth century women's rights movement. Right. So does is Bridget Jones post feminist? Does it have to be post feminist? Is it post feminist? No. Does it have to be? No. <laughs> well, oh, okay. Well, but I, when I say post feminist, you know, I, I want to make sure you know I'm being clear. It's a story about you know a character who her vision of success is defined almost entirely through uh, you know. Through capitalism, mm-hmm. through you know, through her success under under capitalism, and through her ability to secure a man of status to have a child with, mm-hmm. to be married, have two point five kids, right. live in a big house, whatever. These yeah. are values that are that are typical, and the and her the way that she attains it, it's entirely within her control, her choice, sort of mm-hmm. thing. That's the way that the story is portrayed. It's not necessarily portrayed that society is conditioning her into particular roles. She is responsible for the choices that she makes. And she has several getting her ass in gear montages where right. she takes responsibility for things like her weight, her her cleanliness habits, all these self-care but, sort of things that are in the way of her achieving happiness in the ways I previously defined. Right. But like, how, like how does that feel post-feminist to you? So... What post-feminism, as I'm I'm de- defining it, it's a sort of aesthetic presentation of a, a a womanhood that doesn't need, that is grateful for all of the progress that feminism has brought, but that sort of doesn't need the movement as it stands. That we that they've sort of reached a point where the rest is up to you, sort of thing. Mm. It's a uh, it, it's it's an it's an aesthetic or a philosophy that is associated with like. Um, you know, uh, girl boss type of of marketing. Right. Um, So, in my opinion, I think the fact that Bridget Jones is set in the early 90s is important. If the 90s were anything like how the movie portrays it, then they were just a hellscape. Um, (laughs) Which they were. And that was the the, the birth of post-feminism was the 90s. And it was the you-can-have-it-all... You know, right. you know, having it all as a concept evolving in that period of time. And it sort of ended the sort of radical aspects of feminism that were so important to the 70s and 80s. Sure. I don't think that, if I'm understanding you correctly, I don't think that Bridget Jones in any way... I think the idea that Bridget can have it all is 
like almost impossible just because like you know she's a person in her 30s who drinks too much what do they say drinks like a fish smokes like like a a chimney chimney. and dresses like her mother or something like that um and it was just an awkward person who doesn't always make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. And I just think the the error that it set him is just really important because I don't exactly think Helen Fielding was setting out to like write anything specifically I, post-feminist. Right. Like I think I I think there's a lot of um, you know, there's still a lot of reliance on, like, she's definitely still feeling the pressures of society in the story. You know, like, she goes to the couple's dinner and they're like, why are all these women single? And she's like... Right, but I don't think it's ever really questioned as, like, an ultimate end goal. There's not, like, like a character in the story who represents, like, a, you know, a fully, you know, liberated woman not bound by the conventions of, you know, social expectation. Yeah, but I would think that you could argue Mm -hmm. that her eventually rejecting Daniel Mm -hmm. could be seen as a sign of liberation because like she thinks essentially that Daniel is the best she can get even though he's horrible to her right. cheats on her uh, or blows just, her off just like all a that sexist harassing yeah. asshole i know <laughs> the whole i i i watching the 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 emailing part yeah. in 2021 is quite an experience <laughs> yeah it's pretty pretty cringe um, well so that's a sort of the exact thing that i'm i'm you know i'm pointing, pointing to, to as yeah. this as an example of you know, an ideology that is sometimes implicit, sometimes not, you know, something that the author would have in particular subscribed to, you know, but that it's a sort of, you know, it's a sentiment that sort of permeates a lot of popular media and a lot of marketing of stories that that focus on a woman making choices, but those choices are completely, you know, her own. She's isolated, independent, whatever there's no use for a kind of political feminism a political Mm. movement of feminism to any of her problems she is making choices right she's saying okay i'm choosing to be objectified in my workplace by my boss because i am into it right and then when that becomes you know when she has a realization that that's not what she wants she simply makes a decision to be with the a better guy as right. opposed to the inherent misogyny in the capitalist system right. which is never really critiqued because there's a really nice guy right over there is, right. that's that's sort of my take on okay. how i read bridget jones as post-feminist but I, it's fine if you guys don't agree that's just that's my read no i i i think i think you're not wrong to see that um like, I, I don't know. I didn't particularly... And maybe it's because it is post-feminist. Like, I didn't particularly look at it and go, ah, feminism the movie, you know? Like, I right. think I think you're right in that, you know? Like, it's it's definitely a product of the 90s. It's definitely a rom-com. Okay. So you would um, read it more as that than as a direct consequence of the source material being absolutely. that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So 
that is that's interesting to me you know so it's like we could imagine i suppose like a uh, you know a, an adaptation of a jane austen novel that isn't focused on you know individual decisions and choices of the protagonists and there and that doesn't really ever try to break or shatter the social bonds that are controlling all the women in the story wait you're saying that one can imagine that or they can't? i'm asked if you're saying that there could be a feminist a more feminist, I suppose, ad- yeah. adaptation set in the modern day. Yeah. But that tells the story of one of Jane Austen's many novels, but that doesn't rely on remaining within a socially confined, you know, path for women. And that doesn't center on women's individual choices as opposed to a, a more broad, you know, political opposition or a radical right. take on society in general yeah i mean i think that's absolutely possible but um, I, d- I feel I think... like i see in these three films even even mm-hmm. in, in prada donato which maybe we can move on to yes next. let's finally talk about the worst movie that we watched <laughs> yeah. but just sort of a, a centering of things on like there we've solved all the problems of feminism all that's left is for women to make the right choices is sort of the reading that one could get from several of these things so let's let's talk about the story of Prada Tanata and its relationship to Sense and Sensibilities. Yeah, so uh, in Prada Tanata, um, starring Alexa Vega from Spy Kids, <laughs> she was the best one in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also, uh, Wilmer Valderrama, canceled guy from that '70s show. Yes. Um, so odd stars. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very strange movie. Um, what was it like a like 2012 like 2000 it was definitely the newest yeah I saw a lot of clueless influence in it but they didn't do it as well no like the the dead mother portrait right it was very (laughs) very weird um like so they definitely made a lot of changes in Prada Tanata from like the original they mainly kept the, the premise which is it's about moving from higher class to lower class but still maintaining that sort of inherited like born with a spoon and you know silver spoon in your mouth kind of wealth right uh, or you know or uh, class just like inherent class yeah. outside of wealth right but does that even exist anymore in american society i mean yeah i mean if you don't have the money like you can't mix in those same circles right like, exactly it's just not done you know it's interesting like her um so these two girls their father passes away and he's got some weird will that gives it to like this brother that they didn't know about he's broke oh that's right he's also broke so they it's like it doesn't even matter about the will so they're just like we buy the house again and yeah. then, again it's like we don't have this anymore we don't have right. the half that women brother. can't inherit land right. and wealth right. we, and his we've moved girlfriend past wife yeah i couldn't understand i did if they were married or not yeah but they're house flippers yes. so they can they buy the house and start to renovate it yeah essentially um, you know, and sort of, like, drive them from the house, and they go to stay with some relatives who live in, uh, you know, L.A. proper, <laughs> in, uh, you know, a Hispanic Mexican neighborhood, um, and so, you know, they they have to adjust to working and, you know, actually having to struggle for once in their lives. And, also, they have to adjust to 
being negged by their love interests, particularly yeah. the uh, the the Colonel Brandon character, which I did not understand at all. Yeah, he was like, "You idiot! You don't know how to do anything. Let me show you how to do stuff." And she's like, "Ew, no!" And then she's like, "Actually, I love you." <laughs> <laughs> like that's the character arc. Right. Well, I think it's sort of, you know, that almost feels more inspired by Pride and Prejudice than Sense and Sensibility, where, you know, in Pride and Prejudice, yeah, I even the original, there's more banter mm-hmm. between, you know, Lizzie and uh, and Darcy. Darcy, right. So it feels like, you know, a sort of more general Austin-y kind of delivery where, yes, they neg each other repeatedly you know? <laughs> right and it's also like a class-based thing where yeah it's not that he's old that makes wilmer valderrama the weirdo right it's, it's that he's poor right he's low class he's like a mechanic slash artist slash handyman gardener man he's everything he's a renaissance poor <laughs> he's a renaissance poor um which should be a tv trope page we, uh, we gotta if it doesn't exist we should talk about that one next <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's weird the way that sense and sensibility gets kind of mixed up with pride and prejudice which i think tends to be the more popular austin anyway yeah absolutely i mean you know if you're gonna ask like um the man on the street name a jane austen novel they're gonna say pride and prejudice you know if you you on the street <laughs> tell me a jane austen novel Duh, i don't know pride and prejudice whatever <laughs> so the colonel branding character and mm. the will be character mm-hmm. so the killer i i can't remember any of their names so i'm just referring to them by their original yeah. names he negs marianne right. and then that's apparently true romance mm-hmm. whereas the willoughby character you know reads poetry to right. her and, and that's romance and, but that's not real romance because he was a scum all along right. he was married and all, all that right. stuff yeah i just I feel like the movie had a lot of opinions about things, and then they didn't really, like, follow through to, right. to the end. <laughs> right, and the, the Marianne character does still like poetry right. in Prada Tanata, but she is more defined by her naivete in the sense that she's classist and that she has prejudice against people who she sees below her, which is portrayed as naive. But that's certainly not Marianne's issue, who would, you know, certainly, like, if she hadn't, you know, needed uh, the money, you know, would be happy to, you know, marry beneath her standing for love, you know, true love, poetic, Shakespearean, whatever kind of love. Uh, so it's a very different sort of vibe character-wise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then I think the the Eleanor character, you know... I, Who's a career woman. Right. Um, which is like a very interesting, I don't know. I feel like it's an interesting change from, you know, being like, oh, I love this person, but like, couldn't possibly love me back to being like, I can't allow myself to love. Like, I'm not allowed to have feelings. I gotta be like a- instead of- Which is a much more modern sort of sensibility. Yeah. Like the social, instead of the social forces mm-hmm. forcing them apart, mm-hmm. and such, it's like, I've got a five-year plan. Right. And I can't possibly let anyone think that be part uh, I slept my way to the top right. or anything like that. Yeah. Also found these- yeah, I think I think in some ways it works. I think, you know, Prada Donata is not like a great film, <laughs> but I think it, it shows all of the work 
that you have to do to make an adaptation of Austin work in modern day because our our values are just so radically different so you're really you know just taking the sort of the sort of characters that are used in austin to critique that previous you know novels of sensibility novels of sentimentality and you're using them to critique hollywood narratives right instead and that's what they're for i i totally agree which is why i found the ending so odd (laughs) like especially for eleanor and her love entrance because they've been doing a very modern day, like, take on it. And then at the end, he's like, I've bought you a house. Will you marry me? And then he actually says the line from Sense and Sensibility, which is, my heart has always been and always will be yours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> guys, slow down. You have kissed once. (laughs) Whereas, I I mean, like, um, Mark Darcy, when he proposes first, or or he professes his love, I guess, first to, um, to Bridget, he does not, like, insult her, her, you know, class and, and whatever else when he's saying, like, that I have, that I like you, that I have feelings for you. So it's, there's, you know, more of a change there almost in like that confession proposal whatever kind of scene yeah i agree because in the original darcy's like your family sucks you're poor but i love you anyway it freaks me out right. that i love you so much will you marry me <laughs> and she's like no this is the shittiest proposal i've ever heard yeah so that's that's what i mean of the kind of austin character who's you know he's they're there to critique that those expectations uh, not necessarily to shatter them, but to show that, yeah, not everyone was as on board with these things as Pamela or, you know, some of the other early novel right. heroines. The more well, uh, kind of sensational. Going, sorry. Um, going back to what you said about post-feminism, you know, in these characters in the Jane Austen novels, the main thing that traps them is societal expectations. Mm -hmm. Women can't uh, make money. They can't own land. Mm -hmm. Uh, The literally only way they can move up in the world is by getting married. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's, I think it would be somewhat difficult to make a modern day adaptation where your characters are deliberately breaking down those sort of right walls. but they're not taking down those yeah barriers right i think i think that's one of the sort of traps of adaptation is is yeah we like seeing jane austen over and over again mostly set in the time period where it takes place because there's a kind of wish fulfillment isn't there in boiling down the human experience to these extremely rigid social roles right that you know, the wish fulfillment of being, like, whisked away by, like, a magical prince. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, even fairy tales, like, princess prince literature mm-hmm. has that same kind of wish fulfillment aspect to it. You know, who is, you know, Mr. Darcy? Right. But a sort of Shrek-like figure <laughs> who, you know, <laughs> you know, he's, he's oh disgusting on a moral God. level, but eventually you fall in love with him. Someone well, please Photoshop 
like Colin Firth's face <laughs> onto Shrek. Like, please, please. Well, I think that's. I think you can really trace. This is going back to Pride and Prejudice, but I think you can really trace through time the different ways that Lydia Bennett's story is treated. Like, I, so in like the 1944 version, mm-hmm. she's just kind of like ditzy because they're all. It's supposed to be like Flappers. the 1940 Girl Friday kind of right. movies and. They're like, oh, 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 I'm married now. All right. In the 1995, I think she has more death. And she's just kind of portrayed as, like, a 16-year-old who's laser-focused right. on boys and getting married. Right. And then in the Kieran Knightley Pride and Prejudice, uh-huh. which I have opinions about, <laughs> um, they had this really weird part where they uh, plot imply that Wickham is going to be a physically abusive husband. And then if you go through the modern ones, there's all these, like in Bride and Prejudice, which is the Bollywood one. Okay. um, I believe she's rescued and then she becomes a motivational speaker. Okay. Um, (laughs) This is just an aside. Sorry. Bride and Prejudice, isn't it actually like not real Bollywood? Like it's it's the director of Bend It Like Beckham? Yeah, it's not. That's a bad way to describe okay. it. It's like a, oh God, you know, it's been so many years since I've seen it. But it's it's a British it's a British film. But the the director is the the director of Bend It Like Beckham has that kind of sensibility. Yeah. Uh, but, so yeah, it's not an actual Bollywood film. Okay. But it's got a lot of those vibes. Vibes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in Lizzie Bennet Diaries, she like becomes more self sufficient and mm-hmm. like has more of a she can like do things on her own right. and not do anything like that. So, I don't really know where I'm going with this point, <laughs> but... So you were saying that, like, yeah. uh, things can sort of be tracked, um, yeah. you know, adaptation-wise by specifically looking at the character of Lydia Bennett yeah. and, like, how her storyline is And how society is kind of views Lydia Bennett's right. like, story. Like, what does it mean to be a disgraced woman or mm-hmm. to be, um, you know, make poor choices regarding love mm-hmm. uh, in in different modern contexts? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in these stories, I you know, we've said it several times, uh, it's about dealing with the pressures of society and how these characters sort of react. Um, but I think there's also, you know, like they're, these are very tropish characters. Right. Like, you know, there's always like the handsome rogue who rides into town and causes trouble and misleads someone and breaks their heart. There's, you know, the noble gentleman who's maybe a little standoffish at first, but eventually confesses his true feelings. Right. Um, I think the old, the older lady characters are, are especially yes. tropish and, and, yes. and they follow these same patterns in all the books. You have, you know, at least one like legit spinster who's like, mm-hmm. you know, never, never really settled down for whatever reason you have, you know, unhappy married couples, uh, you know, where the wife is, you know, overly obsessed with some social rule and mm-hmm. the and the husband is, 
you know totally disengaged right i gotta sit here and read my paper or work on my <laughs> fishing or sit in a boat right you know, those kind of things you know so you definitely have that there's usually a hysterical parent yeah uh in in some respect whether it's a father or a mother you also get a lot of dead parents depending yeah. on the adaptation or the, the specific story you're reading for like the leads themselves you know it's get a lot of quirky girls i would say you know uh you know everyone's highly educated obsessed with um you know the arts poetry literature very sensible usually in in some way uh or quite the opposite naive and idealistic so there's always contrasts in that yes like there especially if there's uh sisters and siblings you know the siblings always contrast very much with each other even the ones who get along you know uh, uh, like in pride and prejudice there's lizzie and jane who get along very very well but you know jane is the the beautiful reserved one and uh you know elizabeth is more of the um, outgoing, sort of witty, yeah. bantery, smart one, etc. Yeah. It yeah. seemed like in several of the adaptations, there was a plot point of someone being sort of afraid to show their affections yes. mm-hmm. for whatever reason, mm-hmm. which leads to misunderstandings and people saying, you know, don't marry that person. She doesn't really love you. And then her being like, I did love you. Yeah. I just couldn't show it. For reasons. Right. For complicated, contrived, societal reasons. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, it it becomes even more just like arbitrary misunderstandings in the modern adaptations, but definitely, you know, still misunderstandings in uh, the originals. Mm -hmm. But they're usually based around some kind of social convention that is being criticized. Um, And I I think that's sort of the, you know, if you you wanted to boil Austin down to just like some of its core ingredients, you you would get a lot of Darcy grime (laughs) along the edges. And Liz, I think your your observation about the the sort of like his girl Friday, Mm -hmm. um, Hepburn sort of like dynamic of these characters like the dialogue is like a huge appeal yes oh absolutely i think that's one of the reasons why jane austen is adapted adapted to the screen so much Mm -hmm. is because her dialogue is so good and why her fans are so proprietary about changing any of the dialogue for you know to fit a hollywood screenplay so if you were if you were to compare the 1940 Pride and Prejudice, the 1995, and the Keira Knightley one, most of those lines, at least in the first two, are just taken straight from the book. Uh-huh. Even if they take different ones, it's actually really interesting to compare <laughs> which ones. Which ones they uh, choose to which take. Which they choose yeah, to yeah, take. Yeah. Sometimes I think reading Jane Austen can be a little dry because I think her words are best spoken out loud <laughs> it's like shakespeare you know yeah it was almost meant to be performed exactly yeah it, they were they were novels meant to be declaimed you know <laughs> That's but yeah i think you know as far as the dialogue it's very much in that bantery style mm. and it's it's you know strictly humorous yeah and so that's why i think it becomes like more rom-coms today even though like the focus of austin was on drama Mm -hmm. and truth and reality rather than on trying to make you laugh right but the dialogue i think is what persists through adaptation oh absolutely especially with pride and prejudice which is i think 
her funniest book. Mm -hmm. Maybe with Emma being second in terms of funniest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, sensibility and persuasion and the others are not sad, sad, but not as, like... They're not as banter-filled. Yeah, not as banter-filled. So if I were to argue that the screwball comedy can trace its roots back to Jane Austen, which I'm not necessarily making that argument, but if you wanted to, you would basically say, all right, Austen's novels are comedies of marriage Mm -hmm. with happy endings Mm -hmm. where people get together with the person they're supposed to be with. And then screwball comedies are traditionally thought of as comedies of remarriage because they take place in a different social, you know, constructed world Uh where people were getting divorced or leaving each other. And then getting back together. Right. And that's a happy ending in the world of the 40s and screwball comedies. And then screwball comedies eventually lead to modern day romantic comedies. You know, the Meg Ryans of the 90s and, uh, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it all retains that root of women who are initially sort of putting off their, you know. Romantic lives. Their complicated romantic interests and saying, oh, we're, we're not really into each other. And then eventually... They are, and they get together, and it's great. There you go. There you I go. think I think you summed it up. What do you think of my theory that Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy created the enemies to, to lovers friends. to lovers trope? I mean, I would I don't know about created, but certainly typify. You know, it's very enemies to lovers, which you know right. I think that's another. That's it's just another one of these juicy tropes that Austin employs that people latch yeah. onto. And I think the the realism of their initial, you know, disattraction right. or unattraction to each other, the way that that is portrayed was so true to life, mm-hmm. so real, that I think it, it yeah, it has resonations. It resonates throughout history For and sure. through the screwball comedy and through to the modern, you know, YA uh, <laughs> drama or oh, your your average, you know, AO3 post. But I mean, Meg Ryan, half of those movies are also like enemies to lovers, you know? Yeah. You could make the argument that You Got Mail is it's like a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Honestly, right. you really could. Um, right, which is why I'm sure, you know, if anybody, you know, is thinking, well, you left out this adaptation or that adaptation, we probably did because we went with specifically the three that are, they say in the title or in the uh, credits, right. adapted from Jane this Austen. Jane Austen novel. Right. Um, I think that uh, there was another one for Sense and Sensibility called... Uh, oh, Material, Material Girls. Material Girls. Uh, if anyone has seen that, uh, feel bad. free to tweet at us at Talking Tropes. <laughs> With your take on that. Liz's uh, take. It's a Hillary Duff and then her sister also. <laughs> Haley movie. Duff. Haley Duff, right? Hillary and Haley. Ha- yeah, Hillary and Haley Duff. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. So I think that one, you said basically it's just the same premise as Prada Tanata. No. No. And it's not. You said. said, said it's, it's, I don't know how they are all legally allowed to call it a sense <laughs> of sensibility adaptation. Right. Because they have these girls. They're wealthy and then they lose their wealth. Yeah, they lose their wealth. But they spend the whole time story trying to get their house back and then they get it back and And, then and that's it that's it (laughs) so it's just like the basic premise of losing your wealth yeah right that's what i mean is that it just it just shares the same initial sort of inciting incident and action and then the rest of it is more hollywood hillary duffness (laughs) and madonna 
yeah also it's in there somehow okay um yeah so please let us know what your favorite austin adaptation is uh whether it's you know a regency era period piece or if it's uh clueless you know be brave enough to talk about why the Kieran Knightley Pride and Prejudice isn't a good Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Liz, I don't know why you think this it's is a, a fine hot film, take. Though. Most people I have talked to don't like it as much as the 1995 oh, you version. Not on beyond the Austin internet nearly as much. <laughs> Oops. Oops, I guess not. Listen, I'm just gonna say the director does not understand the tone of Pride and Prejudice. This is my truth. I must speak it out into the world. And he does not understand the wealth of the Bennets okay. at all. Just, he just doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. Who who reads Prime Prejudice and thinks, yes, romantic drama. This is what we're going to do. Rain, torrential thunderstorm during a proposal scene. Yeah, who a, thinks that? There's a lot of rain in that movie. There's so much rain. Oh my god. I'm um, sorry. I just had to speak my pr- my truth. Well, it did come after Bridget Jones, so maybe that's why. <laughs> um. Yeah, but please tweet tweet us your favorite Austin adaptation at Talking Tropes. Uh, I'm I'm Hannah. He's David, and thank you so much, Liz, for joining us and being here and lending us your expertise and your Austin love. Thank it's been you. A pleasure having you. <laughs> it was a pleasure being here. Is there anything you want to? Is there anything you want to plug or you know promote or anything? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Liz DeCook L I Z D K O K. Um. <laughs> Otherwise, otherwise, you know, (laughs) that's it, really. (laughs) (laughs) She makes great tweets. Can confirm. (laughs) Well, uh, you can catch us next week. We'll have another uh, Standing Stanley Tucci for y'all. And uh, we'll we'll, we'll see y'all later. Okay, okay, before you stop, I oh. just noticed that we, we like, talked about the plot of Sense and Sensibility, but we didn't talk about the plot of Pride and Prejudice and... But everyone knows the plot Emma. of Pride and Prejudice. Okay. okay.